Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Hi, today is March 10th, 2023. We have Mr. Bruce Melman from Washington, D.C., talking about the general political landscape as U.S. presidential election gets on the way and China becoming a bigger topic and legislations for coming years. Uh, Chinese and American domestic politics is uh, not an area I'm training in, but hope to be a quick learner as it is becoming unavoidable for people whose job is to understand uh, China and U.S. and uh, the, you know, the U.S. strategy in Asia Pacific. Uh, tell us about yourself and Melman Consulting. What's keeping Congress busy nowadays and what's keeping you busy? Wow, Li Chen, we only have a half hour. That's uh, that's a lot. It's <laughs> a big topic right there. Well, first, thank you and Wisdom Tree for the invitation to uh, to chat today. It's uh, I, I, I enjoy reading a lot of uh, the big economic products that Scott Welch and others put out from Wisdom Tree, so it's fun to be asked to contribute to it. And uh, a word on myself, I, 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 am, uh, I lead a bipartisan government affairs firm that works with um, lots of companies, mostly American multinationals, to try to understand what's happening in government, uh, to anticipate what's likely to happen next around policy and politics, and then to engage with policymakers uh, to, uh, to try to uh, engender more favorable outcomes for themselves. Um, I am, to be clear, neither an investment advisor, as my track record would show, nor am I an economist. Um, but uh, increasingly these days, political risk is something that I know a lot of your audience considers and weighs and tries to uh, measure. And so uh, to the extent I can be constructive, I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, you had a deck uh, that characterized 2023 as, you know, imbalanced and the rise of uh, nationalism that's pushing uh, supply chain resiliency and a couple of other things. Uh, of, you know, from the economic terms, uh, resiliency also means less efficiency. So do, do people, you know, understand um, what what's the cost of this new and balanced equilibrium? Well, so- Sure. Look, it's a great question, and maybe just the, the at, at the outset that the observation was that we were already in a transition period. We had gone from a Cold War geopolitically to a post Cold War, where where the United States was sort of seen as the sole superpower, to if not a new Cold War, a a, a an era of greater competition and higher friction between the U.S. and China. We'd gone from an industrial era to an information age, to what feels like a AI-driven post-information age. You know, in so many ways, it feels like the old uh, equilibrium, whether it's technology or economics or geopolitics or culture, uh, is giving way to something new, but the new thing's not here yet. And when you take a look at the impact of both the, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and also the Russian in- invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, it, it it has both accelerated some of the trends and invited backlash against other of the trends. And so our observation was that American citizens, citizens around the world, politicians find uh, ourselves collectively living in a less predictable, more uncertain world. Now, you asked a specific question about the trade-off between uh, you know, greater resilience and efficiency, and you're right. The challenge is if you have a just-in-time uh, model, 
and a bad climate event happens, like I don't know, a, you know, a, a hurricane or or a, a, a tidal wave hitting uh, Taiwan, or if you have, you know, a, uh, a geopolitical event, so an unprovoked, unexpected invasion by Russia of their neighbor, you know, suddenly your very efficient network is very at risk and very exposed. So. I do think you're seeing a lot of businesses switch their inventory strategy and their supply chain strategy, giving up on hyper-efficiency because efficiency is only good when it works. And if your hyper-efficiency makes you hyper-exposed and something happens uh, in, in, you know, in militarily or something happens ecologically uh, and you only had one source and your source is now shut down, you way uh, regret your hyper-efficiency. And so I think businesses and nations are realizing we, 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 uh, we rotated too far towards efficiency, too much just in time and not enough just in case. Um, in terms of what's keeping people in Washington, D.C. busy, obviously I've heard, you know, um, the, the, you know, the presidential election is in the beginning, you know. Do you see... Uh, for people outside the Beltway, you, when it comes to China, mostly we hear it's bipartisan, uh, which, uh, you know, is agree. And some people say it's a groupthink, but regardless, you know, which word they use, um, is, I think, uh, is this a good way to characterize the situation? Um, because when I'm looking at the bipartisan, there are a lot of bipartisan uh, issues in the U.S., but the the proposed solutions are very different. Like, I think uh, both Democrats and, and, and Republicans can agree on some kind of a, a, a goal in terms of how to how to um, compete with China, right? Um, but what's, are the solutions different? And do you, where, what do you see, like, uh, in terms of, let, let, you know, help us unpack this, so-called bipartisanship, uh, how much of agreement, how much of disagreement, and where, where's the difference of emphasis now? Uh, there's a lot to unpack, of course. And I wouldn't say it's so-called bipartisanship. It's real bipartisanship. The uh, you know, the House of Representatives, where Republicans and Democrats in don't don't frequently agree on things, overwhelmingly agreed on the need to set up a special committee to focus on competition with China. It was something like 360 votes, which out of 435 is a giant bipartisan majority. Um, I, I don't think there's any issue that unifies Republicans and Democrats more. So, for example, um, two of the leading senators are Senator Warner of Virginia and Senator Rubio of Florida, and they are the chair and the ranking senator of the Senate Intelligence Committee together. They're very much lock arms working together on lots and lots of policies. Um, so, so I'd start with um, there is an overwhelming agreement among Democrats and Republicans that under President Xi, the Communist Party of China represents a greater threat uh, than uh, than uh, was presented under Deng Xiaoping or, or previous leaders of China. That there is a sense that something has changed across the Pacific, and and uh, there is a new strategy that uh, creates greater peril for American businesses, for American allies, and for American interests around the world. One way you can see. Um, consistency is President Biden's team came in and they don't have a lot of kind words for President Trump or his team, but directionally their China policy is pretty identical to the one they inherited from the Trump team. You know, the, the tariffs, the three, Section 301 tariffs haven't come uh, gone away. 
Uh, they're, they're looking to strengthen export controls. They're looking for stronger outbound investment restrictions. You know, they're, they're a little bit more uh, maybe disciplined. You know, they don't, they don't uh, announce policies by tweet uh, first and foremost, unless that was the plan. Um, but, but in terms of the substance and the direction, they're pretty darn similar. So, you know, if, it, yeah, there's a lot of disagreement. Sure, there's a presidential election coming. If anything, where you'll see the disagreements politically are, uh, both parties are going to try to represent themselves as being tougher against China than the other party, as opposed to um, as opposed to you know this not being an area of agreement. Thank you. Um, are there any differences of emphasis uh, between Democrats and uh, Republicans? So, for example, um, I'm looking at long list of legislatures. Like I counted, you know, there are at least seventeen uh, issues. On the plate, uh, there was a committee hearing on on China uh, related issues. It just said, you know, quick glance. There's several issues. One is technology, Taiwan, uh, and and uh, a couple other, you know, I- investment related TikTok. Um, are there any difference of, of priorities between the two parties, or or among different? you know, different politicians who, who may have, some may have a bigger power than the others. Without a doubt, there are differences. Uh, I, I tend to find that the fault lines, the differences are less between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It's far more likely that you see differences between perhaps the House and the Senate or between people on the Financial Services Committee and people on the Foreign Relations Committee. Some of the differences reflect, you know, if you're a committee chair and your job is to spend all of your time, um, uh, you know, thinking about financial services, then that's the issues you see. That's the constituencies you hear from. Those are the problems you'd like to tackle. And that may be different. You may spend less time thinking about, you know, how to help Taiwan defend itself uh, should things uh, come to that. You know, there are some members of Congress who are more upset about human rights and the genocide of the Uyghurs and, and things that are happening you know, uh, over there. And then there are other folks who, who are focused on the military. And then there's still other folks who are worried about the theft of intellectual property or, or you know, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the single sourcing of many critical minerals. So um, there definitely are lots of differences of opinion in what should be done first and in how to accomplish things, but they're not quite team red versus team blue as much as generally reflective of what members have spent their own time focusing on and thinking about, or maybe just how they tend to problem solve more on an individual or committee basis than on a party basis. Um, so among all these issues, what are the top two or three that you see that could potentially have uh, real legislation coming out? And I'm speaking in the background of uh, uh, last three or four years, there was a Bill that uh, I think uh, Senator Marco Rubio proposed about uh, potential delisting of Chinese companies. In the end, uh, it was solved by compromise uh, between U.S. and China that allowing maybe. the maybe yeah temporarily solved. Actually, I myself is more uh, negative. I think this is a temporary solution. There will be new things coming. Um, but what I'm saying is at least that legislature was passed. It first it was proposed. When it was proposed, I think some people were skeptical. Yet uh, 
I'm not skeptical, you know, so because I, I, I feel like uh, this is what's coming um, and we need to position the portfolio, uh, you know, move some of the tra- trading to Hong Kong. But um, but clearly, you know, there's a process in the U.S., which is good. Um, but what are the issues that you're seeing that has some, you know, has a slightly higher likelihood of, of getting real actions? Because only if they got passed into law, Will they push other actors to act right now? Look, you're right. Uh, I guess first, the reason I interrupted you and said maybe is because what I've read suggests that the uh, the agreement that we thought we had, where Chinese uh, headquartered companies listed on American exchanges would allow for audits consistent with uh, you know the standards and expectations. Um, that in fact, the government of China is not allowing for that. So it was a promise that wasn't real, uh, which makes me wonder where that will go. Um, things that I would, so, so that would, that would obviously lead, should that be walked back, that would lead to the delisting and, 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 or um, the actual uh, acceptance and compliance by those companies with uh, the, you know, the accounting standards that every other company that wants to list on these exchanges has to live by. I think outbound investment restrictions is a matter not of if, but of when. I assume you'll see action first from the executive branch, from the president, um, through the Department of Commerce uh, or Treasury. I forget exactly where they're, where they're birthed. But I think you may also see Congress consider putting that into law and maybe making it tougher. I think there are efforts, there are going to be efforts on, on cross-border data flow limits already with the Great Firewall, China doesn't allow a lot of data into China, and they definitely don't allow a lot of chain- data out of China. And I think you're going to see the United States and others um, putting up uh, stronger guardrails to try to prevent the exfiltration of data that could get into the hands of, of, uh, of the government of China. Obviously, you want to prevent that through hacking, but they're also legal means, uh, and they're going to want to prevent that uh, the, the loss of data through legal means. I think uh, there are concerns about propaganda. You know, there is a free press in the United States uh, and a lot of free speech, not so much in China, but uh, Chinese actors and Chinese funded uh, groups or government funded groups have spent a lot of effort through universities, through newspapers, um, through uh, through media outlets to try to, you know, the benign thought would be to try to have people have a better opinion of China, whether it's culturally or otherwise. But many worry that they're also doing what Russia does, which is trying to divide Americans against Americans and otherwise um, having, you know, causing Hollywood to not necessarily make the movies that they would want to make. Um, there's a lot of talk about supply chains and the decoupling of supply chains in particular. You know, there are lots of critical minerals that American technology and other uh, other firms depend on or or PPE, as we saw with the pandemic and the masks and such. And, you know, in, in pursuit of efficiency over the last 20 years, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of that became sole source supplied, either one country or one company, and uh, and that's recognized now as a, as a risk, as an exposure. You know, should God forbid Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan situation turn into a shooting war, one assumes you'd have the same kind of sanctions against China that we see against Russia, and that would bring the global economy to a halt. Um, well, you want to make sure if you're a government that that scenario doesn't prevent you from doing what you need to do to, to support a friend, which means you can't rely on just one country for lithium or, or, or whatever the other um, minerals are. Um, you're seeing the United States pursuing new regional economic alliances 
You're seeing things like the AUKUS defense deal with the nuclear submarines and, and supplying uh, Australia with better defensive weaponry. Um, and then there's a lot of uh, you know ongoing concern about human rights. And there was legislation last Congress and there could be more. So this is a ripe area with lots of uh, lots of things that we continue to expect to see uh, from the executive branch and, and regulation, and lots of things that are that are very much potential in China. My my, my company maintains a tracker. You found seventeen. <laughs> I think they've got they've got a ridiculous number of of uh, of uh, proposed laws that that you know are sincere and generally bipartisan and and trying to put America in a better defensive position vis-a-vis China. Thank you. Uh, for our audience, uh, I'll quickly comment a little bit on the delisting issue uh, because it's you know really impact uh, our portfolios uh, uh, when we came to China. So indeed, um, after the law passed, uh, at least this year, temporarily, there is an agreement that China uh, is allowing the super auditor, PCAOB, to audit the audit auditors uh, of Chinese companies. Um, so the issue is really about super auditor versus not necessarily the Chinese companies not willing. Uh, so for now, uh, at least for this year, uh, they've given the certification that they are able to have uh, uh, unlimited access, which that's what what's needed. Uh, now, we will see whether by next year that you know the PCA will be continued to actually the Chinese state companies dropped the top um, auditing firms um, probably in the way, in a subtle way, to make it easier for the U.S. to say that they have unlimited uh, auditing uh, uh, auditing freedom in China. So in some way, China is kind of, you know, gently um, helping make it easier uh, for, for, for the private companies. To, to continue to be able to continue to stay uh, listed, then the private the state-owned companies are going to leave from the New York Stock Exchange uh, for sure um, because they they won't be uh, using those auditors. Um, so that's the, still the temporary solution. Uh, I think in terms of public market, you mentioned about you know investment in. For now, it's it's still focused on the. Uh, for we use the jargon that as a. Um, you know, not the venture capital. Those are those are the the first kinds of the companies that's going to get the investment review. Like companies who want to invest in uh, foreign direct investment in China. In terms of public companies, I think for now it's still not yet on the agenda. But it it will be because uh, you know Senator Rubio might be as a main sponsor of the previous legislation. It might not be uh, as satisfied as the outcome because right now the Chinese companies are still listed, you know, in New York. So I think that issue ultimately uh, will come back. But for now, I think I want to follow up a little on on really two things. One is uh, TikTok, right? I think uh, there's just so much um, people, you know, wondering what's likely to happen. Uh, what's the process that's likely happened to TikTok? Boy, it's a great question that a lot of people are uh, spending a lot of time focused on. It's you know, as I have followed it, um, which I followed it pretty closely. You know, the the, the Yi Ming, the, the the creator, wanted to be Jack Ma. You know, he's this creative entrepreneurial technologist. He's not in the military. He's not a government guy. You know, and and for a while, it felt like China was allowing entrepreneurs to create 
interesting uh, uh, new companies and to, to you know be technologically entrepreneurial. Under President Xi, that's gotten a lot harder. He had a crackdown on technology leaders. So Jack Ma doesn't seem to be running uh, some of his stuff anymore. And, and um, it got harder. And they passed, you know, uh, they, they passed something called a national security law, which gives the government the right to to do things. And so now TikTok, which is a U.S. app and worldwide, but not in China app, there's a different one in China, is owned by a company that's headquartered in China and subject to the laws in, of China. And so as a result, given the mistrust of the uh, Communist Party and of President Xi, um, the things that could be, uh, you know, that could be uh, uh, overseen or controlled by the government are now sus- suspect. And the app is so popular, 100 million Americans enjoy it, that um, it presents uh, in the minds of many a very uh, wide risk. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, can we put up guardrails for the data, uh, for the algorithm that would ensure there is no opportunity for the government of China to access Americans' data or to influence Americans' minds? And if they can come up with guardrails that are satisfactory to the national security apparatus, then you know people who like the app can continue enjoying the app. Uh, it's through something called the CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. So it's an oversight process involving national security and economic security experts. If they can come up with guardrails, then they will, you know, they will put them in place. We can sleep easier with less concern about data and such. And if they can't come up with the uh, with the guardrails, then Either the company is going to have to, you know, become a separate independent company, not overseen and not subject to the laws of China, or it's not going to get to operate here. Um, while that process, while the national security effort to build those guardrails is happening, you have many uh, members of Congress and others trying to uh, expedite a solution that that's, you know, gets to a conclusion that they think we need to get to. You know, who knows where it's going to end up, but. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a bit of a canary in the coal mine. This is is asking the question, are there ways to have uh, entertainment products created here that operate there and entertainment products created there that operate here? And it comes down to the ability for both countries to protect the data of their respective uh, national users and the ability of both countries to protect against propaganda overseen by the other nation you know, it's it's for business people. You want to sell things around the world, and they want to sell things around the world. And you know, for national security people, you have a different set of considerations. Thank you. Yeah, I, thank you. I think uh, it is like you said, the canary in the mine. I think how how TikTok is handled, uh, legislature from legislature, or even um, if if Congress passes a law to ban it. Will it, you know, stand the test of the court system? Is remain to be seen. Um, I, interestingly, a lot of people I talk to in China is is more pessimistic than the people I actually talk in the U.S. So, um, very fascinating. Uh, a, a lot of people in China think that TikTok uh, will be banned, um, but we will see how how it's go. Um, the other area I think uh, I've been recently rereading. Um, uh, National Security Advisor Jake uh, Sullivan's article from 2019 uh, in Foreign Policy. It's called uh, "Competition Without Catastrophe." If 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 anybody hasn't read it, but interested in in I think in China, I highly recommend it. I think a lot of the framework, the things that coming out of the uh, DC is 
is operating under that framework. That I think under that framework, one thing that talked the, uh, was uh, getting a lot of emphasis, and I believe will be uh, continue to emphasize, is about technology competition. Um, and clearly, U.S. has put a significant more uh, industrial policy in how in investing in, in technology and, and safeguarding technology, um, IPs, uh, those those kind of things. In terms of legislature or or the clients that uh, you uh, you know help advise, what what do you see uh, in this area? Yeah, and look, my perspective on this and probably everything else clearly reflects somebody who operates in Washington D.C. in the United States, you know, and so I'm, I I don't bring a global perspective. I very much have a national perspective. The the perspective uh, that I hear from government leaders, Republicans and Democrats, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, but also from business leaders, is that you know that uh, over the last twenty years, the United States has both um, uh, leveraged uh, manufacturing and intellectual and other capabilities in China, but also competed and the competition hasn't necessarily been on a level playing field. And so you have, you know, uh, Chinese support for state-owned companies, Chinese, you know, ability to restrict market access by U.S. companies, you know, China deciding who the national champion is, you know, giving very large government contracts, a lot of things. You look at solar, where the U.S. invented a lot of the intellectual property, but now, you know, a lot, most of this, a vast amount of the solar leadership and technology are Chinese companies. Their researchers in China are smart. Um, whether they started by copying and then ultimately developed uh, capabilities to innovate is some is the is is uh, something before a lot of courts. I'm not an expert in it, um, but for a lot of folks, uh, a lot of uh, Americans, there is a sense that. You know, that state support uh, for Huawei allowed Huawei to get large and would allow Huawei to enter markets and offer way below actual operating costs. You know, the, the competing against state-owned enterprises is difficult. And if state-owned enterprises are able to steal intellectual property, and if you sue the state-owned enterprise for stealing intellectual property, you find yourself in court instantly. This happened with Micron, you know, where, where in Taiwan, you know, uh, uh, Chinese nationals stealing technology were caught and were brought, uh, you know, were, were uh, brought uh, to court. And while that happened, suddenly Micron gets sued for IP theft, which clearly was not what was going on. But they quickly then lost in lightning speed in the court in China. And, you know, for a lot of American companies, there is a sense that, that state sponsorship, state uh, approach towards IP, state subsidization of technologies uh, and state direction of overwhelming amounts of research is how sort of how China has competed. And in the United States, we let companies compete against companies and they're ruthless and it makes them, it certainly makes them uh, uh, stronger competitors and better innovators, but they don't nearly have the resources that a, a national champion might have. That's kind of the where things have been when, when some take a look at areas like artificial intelligence, where you know Microsoft and others catalyzed a, a, a lot of really smart folks becoming uh, de developing a lot of capability in China, but China now has far more data, just given the size of the population, and far more control of the data, given the nature of the surveillance state. You know, China has every reason that they will do really well and lead and be incredibly innovative in, in areas of in, of artificial intelligence which some see as more than even an economic challenge, but also a, a national security challenge. 
Thank you. And uh, in terms of internet, uh, artificial intelligence, I recently talked to some people in this area. I think uh, the the cutting edge innovation is still coming out of the U.S. On the other hand, China's uh, AI capability is also not low. Uh, and interestingly, I understand, I think in the U.S., there's a huge um, uh, emphasis on state support. But if you, if you actually look at where Chinese uh, technology has done well, it's where the private industry dominated. So for example, the um, solar panel and uh, electric vehicle uh, areas, there are almost uh, very few uh, state-owned enterprises. So that that question, uh, I think it's a, it, it's a tricky issue that when U.S. trying to uh, support uh, private companies that they're not losing the private competition because and and even ch- if even we look at the China the the areas that China has done well are private company dominated areas at least in commercially now on semiconductor and other other technology it's not necessarily the case so that's a probably in the future I want to help bring more guests to understand a little bit more. The consumer tech and you know mid tech is a little bit different from like a semiconductor. The the kind of tech uh, China has a, a, a is behind. Um, That's a great point. A- That's a great point. And by the way, it's not just the U.S. and China. Taiwan has put an immense amount of support behind TSMC. You know, in Samsung and 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 you know in, in uh, Korea. I mean, it's there are. Uh, uh, for semiconductors in particular, nations need a national semiconductor or, or multiple national semiconductor players. And, they, and and because of the billions that are required, they've definitely been providing support everywhere. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a I think it's an area where you require really significant capital and really only the state can provide the kind of capital uh Taiwan is a is a good example as well. You know, their industrial policy for semiconductor is uh, is is not a you know is is not that laissez faire, laid back as as people think. Um, yep. I have a question in terms of you know people who are not very day to day living in that world. Uh, what kinds of places people should pay attention to to future you know China related legislations, you know in terms. Do, do, do people should pay attention to what State Department does or committees in Congress? Like where where a person should go and find out like a first source of materials? I'll tell you, right now, it's almost all of the above. We're seeing legislation even at the state level, the you know various American states. We're seeing federal legislation proposed. We're seeing regulations from the Department of Commerce. Uh, as well as uh, you know, export controls and, and limitations from the Department of Treasury and sanctions, where they're in charge of sanctions. Um, it's, I would argue, it's an all of government, and it's both state and federal. And for that matter, you, you know, you're seeing it from a lot of other Western nations as well. Um, so it's not even just the United States. Uh, you got to watch the UK and probably watch Australia and New Zealand, and you know, to some degree, you watch Japan. And it's, you know, it, the. Uh, Competition with maybe decoupling from China and U.S. is, I think, the defining geopolitical story of this decade, and uh, and uh, it's it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's President Joe Biden or the next president, and it doesn't matter if Republicans are in charge of the House or the Senate or Democrats. 
I think this is directionally, this is where things are headed and they will be. The only governmental change that theoretically I think could change things would be if there were a change in China, but you know, they, they call President Xi president for life. So it doesn't feel, and that just happens. So it doesn't feel like that's about to change. So I think yeah. this is going to be a decisive decade, but, but one where there is no one place, unfortunately, to pay attention. You got to pay attention to everything. Um, who are like who, who are the active uh, politicians who you know um, people should you know follow? I, I know there are you know Senator Marco Rubio. He's he's well known, but I, I mean, when I'm looking at the list of legislature sponsors, there are many many unfamiliar names. <laughs> so I mean, look, there, there's uh, there's widespread interest across many committees. I, mean, I could give you a list of uh, 20 in the House and 20 in the Senate, and I probably would get in trouble for not mentioning people I'm supposed to mention. Um, <laughs> you're right. Senator Rubio has been uh, front and center and a leader on this, as has Senator Warner, who, who uh, works with him on the Senate Intelligence Committee. A very interesting committee is the new standing committee, the new select committee in the House of Representatives on China with Chairman Mike Gallagher as the chair although he's working very closely with his uh, with the Democratic counterpart there. That's a new committee. It didn't exist. And while they're not going to create new laws, um, if you only could watch one committee this Congress, they may be the most interesting committee and the one that, that catalyzes the most conversation and, and, and uh, inspires the most other committees to act. So pay a lot of attention to this new select committee in the House on China. Thank you. Um, maybe one last question. Um, Curious in terms of how did military play its its role in formulating legislature, um, as China is also you know part of the national security challenge, right? I understand military is not supposed to directly influence uh, lawmaking, but any like uh, how does any subtle way of you know like kind examples on uh, how military plays uh, its influence or its uh, you know, give give advice when, when these legislations are getting proposed and getting implemented? Look, I, I hope and know that the legislate, that, that uh, lawmakers in every country ask their various intelligence and military services for advice. You know, do you have what you need to keep the country safe? You know, are you preparing for potential contingencies? You know, what are the risks that we face and what are the harms that we face? You know, and when you take a look Where's hacking happen? Where, you know, where's the hacking coming from? And and some of it's criminal gangs, some of it's Russia or Iran or North Korea, and some of it's China. So that's something they care about. You know, what what's the state of our military? And if Taiwan faced the military confrontation, could we help them? You know, and you learn things like, well, um, the Chinese military is focused on things like hypersonic missiles and, and anti-ship missiles and other things that would, you know, that I think many in America's military. Um, a couple of years ago, realized we're not prepared and we need to to invent invent new things and invest in things um, to better prepare for what a real 21st century war would look like. You know, you, you see a similar thing where the Russians um, didn't weren't at all prepared uh, for Ukraine. They just assume we're big, they're small, you know, and because uh, Vladimir Putin's an autocrat, uh, people told him what he wanted to hear, not the truth. And it turns out, aided by Western intelligence and Western technologies, the Russian military was not able to, you know, to win uh, rapidly. Every country is taking a look at that and trying to learn lessons. So there is and there should be a very robust conversation between 
the national security apparatus and the legislative apparatus. It's a two-way discussion. Obviously, if you and I were generals, uh, we would always want more, you know, because <laughs> our job is to not lose. And so double my budget and I'm less likely to lose than if you cut my budget. Uh, but but lawmakers perceive genuine real risks uh, and they, you know, it's their job to push the military to think about the next war, not just fight the last one. Um. Anything else that's capturing the attention of DC aside from China at, at this moment? Sure, lots of things. Maybe for a uh, future podcast, uh, you know, obviously people care about campaigns and elections. Republicans are very unhappy about ESG, whereas Democrats uh, are unhappy uh, that we're not moving faster on the energy transition. Um, there's, uh, you know, they're fighting over the debt uh, and the deficits and how much government spends and whether there is any way to bring it down. They're always fighting about taxes and spending. Um, there are lots of topics, uh, but the topic of today is the one they kind of agree on. Thank you. This is great. Uh, I know you are on Twitter for our listeners, uh, Bruce uh, Melman. He's on Twitter. And for any others, uh, people who are interested in you know, do, listening or working with you, um, where, where, should they, where could they go and find you? So, uh, I mean, my company, Melman Consulting, has a website, but uh, your listeners are more likely to be interested in the things we occasionally publish. And you're right. The best places to find them are either on Twitter at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N or find me on LinkedIn. Tell me you're a uh, listener of the uh, Wisdom Tree podcast and I'm happy to link in with you. Um, and I publish, when I publish things, I put them on Twitter and put them on LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll be talking more uh, as both, you know, we agree China uh, will be a big topic for years to come uh, for the U.S. So thank you so much for the, for, for the time to discuss us. I'm learning as well. So hopefully we have, you know, even deeper discussion when some of the actual legislations uh, come, come into place. Lichan, thank you for having me.